I'm so thankful to be here to share God's word with you. For those joining with us on campus and those joining with us online, uh, let us ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this morning. Lord, as we come to this just special time of just hearing from you, from your word, uh, Lord, we ask uh, that you would give us great clarity in what you want us to hear and how you want us to respond. Lord, thank you for being gracious and merciful. Lord, thank you that you are full of uh, opportunity uh, to repent and return. Lord, that you are a judge of all, that you see all. And Lord, in you and through you only can you restore all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. We're going to look at uh, verses 4 through 17 this morning. So we do have a good chunk of scripture to look at. uh, But it'll be so worth it. Uh, If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, please look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 861, 861. And if necessary, please use the table of contents. It's okay. That's why it's there. Uh, As we're turning to uh, our passage this morning, uh, just a way of just kind of reminding where we were Uh, last week. We started the series last week, walking through the book of Jonah. Uh, The events that are recorded for us are uh, roughly 750 to 800 years before uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, And it's important for us to realize that as we read the book of Jonah, uh, that, that these are historical events that happened in the real life of the prophet Jonah. Right? Some people will discard it because of different things like the fish, the worm, uh, the plant, all these things that we're going to see uh, here shortly over the next couple weeks. But at the end of the day, uh, when Jesus describes uh, the prophet Jonah in Matthew 12 to the scribes and Pharisees, he says uh, that, that there is going to be a greater sign than Jonah. That is him. Right? And so when he looks back at the story of Jonah, he looks at it as historical fact, historical truth, and that is important for us. Uh, and at the same time, we need to recognize that the book of Jonah is far more than about Jonah or a fish or any of those things, it's really pointing us to a gracious and merciful God, what we see in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And what we have is uh, the story of the gospel. You know, sometimes people think that the gospel begins in the New Testament. That is not true. All throughout uh, redemptive history, from the beginning pages of Genesis all the way through uh, the book of Revelation, we see uh, the gospel uh, really being unfolded. And what we have in the life of Jonah is we see sin, we see sinking, we see desperation, we see uh, a man on the run. Uh, But that's not the end of the story, by the grace of God. In the midst of Jonah's darkness and rebellion, God ushers in grace, salvation, deliverance, and rescue. And this is good news, because in those first few verses in Jonah chapter 1, the prophet is on the run. Jonah is on the run. Let's look at that real quick. Uh, The scripture says in those first three verses, uh, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So God gives Jonah specific instructions, right? Very clearly, Arise, go, speak to the Ninevites. But Jonah chooses to do what? He chooses to go to the opposite of direction. So instead of going 550 miles uh, to the east, he chooses to go 2,000 miles uh, to the west. And and the reality for us is that that you and I, we run as well, right? Uh, In fact, uh, in Jewish tradition, on the Day of Atonement, uh, when the book of Jonah would be read, they would all cry out, we are Jonah, we are Jonah, we are Jonah. And the same is true for us. And here's what we recognize uh, about running from God. No matter what the method is or the reasons, why, right? Whatever that excuse is, we have to recognize that running from God is a sin. 
And when we choose to run from God and continue on that path, there's a downward progression. And that's what we saw in Jonah's life. Jonah leaves where he is, where he gets the call of God. Uh, He goes down to Joppa. He goes down to that seaport. He goes down the dock, if you will. He goes down to the boat. He goes down into the inner part of the boat. And then eventually we're going to find that he's down fast asleep, right? And the same is true for us. When we choose to run from God, when we choose to flee, whatever that calling is, right, that, that we go on this downward progression. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And sometimes that fleeing from God seems right at the time, right? You see it from Jonah's perspective for just a minute. He's trying to get out of the will of God. He just goes to the seaport of Joppa where nobody knows his name, right? It's not an uh, Israelite-controlled port city. These are people that would have never recognized who he was. He gets there. There happens to be a boat heading the opposite direction. And he just happens to have the money to pay for it, right? And sometimes we think that too. When we're on flight from God, either it's because we're doing the wrong thing or we're failing to do the right thing. That's important, right? So we flee from God in two different ways. That sometimes we think that these open doors of movement towards rebellion are somehow God's will, right? And here's what we have to recognize. Any movement of rebellion, regardless if the door is closed or the door is open, is still that. It is rebellion, and that's where we find Jonah. And that rebellion is costly, right? For Jonah, it impacted his fellowship with the Lord, uh, it impacted his family. It impacted those around him. And the same is true for us. If you're a follower of Christ, uh, it will impact your fellowship with the Lord. It'll impact your relationship with the people around you. And that's exactly what we see in Jonah's life. And the question is, for us today, as we read our passages, what does God do in the midst of that? All right, you have a wayward prophet. You have a wayward follower of Christ, if you will, to use our contemporary language. What, what is God's movement in that place, in that situation? That's why I love verses 4 through 17. So we're going to read the entire uh, passage together, and then we'll unpack it. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord and the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous again for them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. The last verse there, uh, Pastor Jason will pick up more on next week, but we're going to hit a little bit on that uh, today. And so again, the question is, how does God address the rebellious runner? You and I, as followers of Christ, when we run from the Lord, how does he respond to us? And what we see in this passage is God's divine intervention. 
God's divine intervention. Jonah needs to be rescued from himself, and he doesn't even realize it, right? Nothing short of divine intervention will do. And how does God get Jonah's attention? He creates what? This violent storm. Verse 4, the scripture says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. I mean, we can't help but read our passage today and just see the interplay between Jonah and God. Like, no matter what move Jonah makes, right, God is already ready to make another move. He's countering every move that Jonah makes with the hopes of correction. The scripture says that but when he got the call, but Jonah fled. When Jonah fled, but God hurled, right? So that's important. All these different things. Now, the question is, we need to have a good theology about the storms of life, right? Because if we're not careful, we'll misunderstand what the scripture talks about when we talk about the storms of life. So let's get a big picture of what the storms of life mean. On one sense, a very real sense, that every storm that we face, regardless, is a result of sin entering into the world, right? That's not how God originally designed humanity to work, right? So no matter what happens in life, whatever that storm is, we know it's a direct result of disobedience that was found in Genesis chapter 3. That has radically changed the trajectory of our life, right? I say that to say this. Not every storm in your life is a result of your sin. The book of Jonah is a clear case for that, right? At the same time, the storm in your life may be, may be a direct result of your sin. And that's what we see in Jonah's life. And I love the word, the word hurled here. The word hurled here means to, to throw something. So think about a spear or a javelin to just launch something, right? And, and it's the picture that God is just grabbing up all the wind and he is just hurling it right at Jonah, right? God is choosing to come after Jonah. God's desire, uh, he desires to tackle Jonah. And guess what? Jonah needs to be tackled, right? We're going to watch some football tonight, and you're hoping your team has a little bit better tackling than the other team, right? In this case, Jonah is on the football field, and he desperately needs to be tackled by God. He is on the ship to Tarshish, heading the wrong direction, and he needs that ship to stop. Because every movement that he's making is causing him to go further and further and further away from the Lord. It is his rebellion against God that is causing the wind and the rain and the waves to come through. He needs, God desires for Jonah's disobedience to stop. You see, God was not motivated by wrath towards Jonah, but instead his mercy. His mercy. The storm is the very discipline that Jonah needed when he was choosing to flee from the Lord. And guess what? When we choose to flee or run from the Lord, that's exactly what we need. We need God's merciful discipline towards us. Solomon writes in Proverbs 3, these words, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so God's intervention in Jonah's life is not punishment, right? Same is true for you and I. As a follower of Christ, the punishment has already been paid in full, right? Jesus Christ swallowed up the wrath of God on our behalf, right? So when we as his children disobey and flee and run, that, that God's discipline is a form of gracious intervention. Though it be painful, right? There's a purpose behind it. The author of Hebrews in uh, Hebrews 12, right after he uh, quotes from Proverbs 3, says this in verse 11, uh, from the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. How many of us have been trained by the discipline of the Lord? 
Do you agree that it, that it produces, it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness? You see, Jonah could not see that deep within the terror of the storm, God's great mercy was at work. God was intervening in his life. So that begs the question, do you see the storms in your life as possible ways that God is disciplining you because he loves you? It's important for us that when storms come our way, we, sh- we should not immediately think that every storm is attacked from Satan, right? It's possible, right? That, that's possibly true. But it's not always true, right? It may be a direct result of our rebelling against him. And the reality is God will use anything. He will use wind, waves, high seas, storms. He'll use job loss, a physical illness. He'll use that settled place of discontentment, a lack of peace, a lack of joy, difficult relationships, and a whole host of other things. Why? To intervene in the fact that we are fleeing, we are running from him. Why is this important? What is God's desire to show us in the midst of that intervention? Several things. One, he does the intervention to test the things that we're trusting in. To test, to test the things that we're trusting in. Right? Now think about the sailors in this case, right? Again, Jonah's the one that's rebelling. The storm is sent. They're being impacted. The sailors are being impacted. Uh, and, and things are being tested in their life. And that's what we see in the first part of verse 5. The scripture says, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. I mean, think about onboard experience, right? I mean, just the chaos of what's happening on board the ship. And when the storm comes, they start doing what? They start throwing everything overboard. Why? Because at that moment, none of that stuff really mattered, did it? They're trying to survive. They're trying to figure out what is going on. How is this going to be relieved? You see, all those things that are temporal in life, when the tests come, we realize in that moment that the temporal things don't matter, right? So we're doing everything we can to get to the bottom of it. And the question that they're really trying to get to, to get the answer to, is whose God will save us, right? These, are, these, are, these sailors don't know the Lord Yahweh, right? They don't know the great I Am. They have many false gods that they worship. And they're trying to figure out which God has been angered, right? And so that's what they're getting at. And this is what we see in the lives of these sailors. The false gods in your life can't save you either. No matter if it's your job, your marriage, or your comfort, it cannot save you. And when we choose to run from God... Guess what? We're choosing to trust in lesser things. We're choosing to trust in lesser things. And what God does in his grace and mercy in the midst of those storms is he begins to pry our fingers away from the things that don't matter the most. He wants to get us to a place where we recognize fully and faithfully that the only thing that matters most is him. So when you consider the storms that you're facing, even if it be a result of somebody else's sin or the result of your own sin, are you truly trusting in the Lord? See, I think in the midst of those things, we are either discovering for the very first time that the Lord matters the most or we're having to rediscover who we forgot in the first place, right? So this message is for both the one who knows the Lord and the one who doesn't know the Lord. That's what we see that's happening on the ship. So he's testing the things that we're trusting in in the midst of the storm. Uh, Second, that divine intervention is to wake us up, uh, to wake us up. Again, Jonah needed to be woken up by his own self-destruction, right? That's exactly where he's headed. He's on a path of self-destruction, and God desires to waken him up. Second part of verse 5 into verse 6, the scripture says, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And so in the midst of all that chaos, Jonah is just snuggled up in his bed, right? 
He's fast asleep. And the way the Hebrew language expresses fast asleep is talking about a numbing to the world, a numbing to the effects of, of your sin, the consequences of your sin in the midst of your own life and the lives of others. The storms that to- touched Jonah's life touched the lives of every single one around him. Right? We cannot miss that. Jonah was the center in this situation, yet his foolish rebellion caused great negative impact on the lives of those around him. And some of us are right there today. We are bearing the very consequences of somebody else's sin, and that's what's happening in the ship That's what sin does to us, though, right? Sin causes us to have a deaf ear to the cries of others. People shouting out for help. Your own family crying out for help. Your own children crying out for help. And because we're rebelling against the Lord, we don't hear their cry. Sin will blind our eyes to all the things that are going on around us. Sin will dull our hearts so that we become insensitive to the voice of God and the needs of others. But God in his grace sends someone to wake him up. And guess who he sends? He sends a pagan. He sends someone that does not worship him. I mean, that's pretty remarkable, is it not? Question, who is God sending to you in order to wake you up? Is it a mom or a dad? Maybe even a child, a co-worker, uh, maybe a fellow student at a church? Maybe it's you, even your enemy? Is it possible that God could use your enemy to, call, to speak to you to wake up? Absolutely. God can use any voice to get the message out. And what's most important isn't who God chooses to use as the messenger, right? What's most important is how are you going to respond to the message, right? And that's what Jonah needs to do. Jonah needs to wake up. So when God chooses to speak to your heart, regardless of the form of that speech, will you choose to wake up? Jonah needed to wake up. So he needs that wake-up call, but that God's divine intervention is designed to expose what is true. And that's what we see in our passage, that God is using the storm in that intervention to expose what is true. He's revealing a lot of things that are happening in Jonah's life and also in the life of these sailors. Notice what happens in verses 7 and 8. And they, talking about the mariners or the sailors, said to one another, "Uh, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and what uh, people are you? So the storm is raging, and these sailors want to know who is the cause of it, right? So they begin to cast lots. So let's have a good theology of casting lots. So this casting lots would have been uh, probably two stones with uh, different colors on them, and they would throw them kind of like dice today, and a certain color match came up, then, then it would kind of direct you to that path. So let's talk about casting lots for just a minute, because this is important. Uh, in uh, uh, the pagan world, the world that uh, did not have any uh, knowledge of God or desire for God, that was a common, very common practice, right? However, even in the midst of God's people, it was also somewhat of a practice. God gave specific instructions on the casting of lots. It was geared towards the priest to determine what God's will was in a situation. And when you look at uh, the history of Israel, uh, the casting of lots happened many times, right? Uh, In fact, uh, when uh, God's people entered into the promised land, uh, one of the ways that they determined uh, how to uh, to parcel out the land was through what? Was through casting lots. Uh, you go to Joshua chapter 7, uh, the sin of Achan in the camp. Uh, one of the ways that they determined uh, who brought sin into the camp was through uh, the casting of lots. When uh, King Saul was uh, anointed as king, uh, how did they determine that? They determined that through casting of lots. Uh, and then when we get to the New Testament, it doesn't mean that they did it always perfect, right? No. 
We get to Acts chapter 1, something happens, right? Remember, Judas dies. Uh, he's one of the original 12 apostles. He dies. And so they got to replace him, right? So uh, how do they replace him in Acts uh, chapter 1? They do so through uh, the casting of lots. So now the question for us today is, should we cast lots today, right? Should we just immediately go to Target, Walmart, or Amazon and get us a magic eight ball, right? That's basically what we're asking. Many reasons to say no. One is, you're going to keep shaking that thing until you get the answer you want, right? Have you ever been there before? Two other very, very important reasons is, uh, we have to realize that in Acts 1, when the last recorded account of casting a lot occurred, that was before Pentecost, right? That was before the Holy Spirit came, right? In the way that he has come today, right? So we have today, we have the Holy Spirit of God living in us, right? We also have something else. We have the completed word of God. So that's why we no longer have to do the process of casting lots, because if we're not careful, the casting lots isn't so much about what God wants, it's what we want, right? So we're just going to keep going back and going back and going back. But we today have the Holy Spirit of God and God's Word. That's what we are to be relying on. And you just got to just picture in this moment in Jonah's life when the lots are being cast, and the lots there, plural, uh, scholars believe that there was multiple times where they came to the same conclusion that everything pointed to Jonah. Can you imagine being in Jonah's shoes at that moment? That everything is singled on you. He's the one who is guilty. And here's what we recognize in this. This is the bigger picture of the casting of lots. Who's in control? Are the sailors in control? Is Jonah in control? No, God is in control. God is going to press and press and press until the real thing is exposed. We see this in Proverbs 16.33. The scripture says, The lot is cast into the lab, but it's every decision is from where? The Lord. We see the sovereignty of God at play specifically in this instance of casting lots. One of the things that we tend to do when we're rebelling or when we're sinning is what? We want to try to hide. We don't want people to know what we did. And what God does is what? God in his grace and his intervention is exposing our sin. He exposes our sin. And we need our sin exposed. No matter how much we fight against it, we really need it because that's actually when healing starts to begin, right? When sin is exposed, restoration is possible in the Lord. The Lord is also producing conviction in Jonah's life. Again, how would you have responded? I mean, would you bring about greater excuse? Greater hiding? Or would you finally own up to what is being done? I love the questions that the mariners ask in verse 8. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? So God is not only exposing Jonah's sin, he's exposing Jonah's true identity. And that is huge. You see, someone who is running away from the Lord always denies who they truly are, right? Jonah could have said, I'm Batman for all we care, right? But he doesn't do that. What does he say in verse 9? He says, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. The word Lord there is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. For the very first time, listen, we hear in Scripture Jonah speak, right? It's the first words that we get from Jonah's mouth. He is actually speaking, and he's finally acknowledging truly who he is. And finally, instead of being his own God, he begins to acknowledge the true and the living God. And there's probably some guilt here, right? Again, Jonah recognizes, and this is my fault. This is my fault. Jonah realizes that the situation is on his hands, if you will, but God is graciously reminding Jonah of who he is. And one of the ways that you and I stop our running, right, is by being reminded of who we truly are in Christ. In other words, our identity matters. You see, some of us are running because our life seems to be one epic fail after another. Anybody resonate with that? It's like no matter what you touch, 
It just falls to pieces. It just falls to pieces. And so you're running and running and running and running. You're drifting, drifting and drifting. And in the midst of your running, we need to realize that the world will always give you a description. Always. But only the Lord can give you a true identity. Right? And that's what's happening in Jonah's life. If you're a child of God, there's no greater reality than who you already are in him. And so, just like Jonah, we are being called to stop running, to stop running, to stop running. Everything we need is found in him. Everything that we need as far as provision or being sustained is found in him. And so, he's exposing the sin. He's exposing the identity. He's also exposing an acknowledgement of the presence of God. Verse 10, the scripture says, Then the men, the mariners, were exceedingly afraid. Now, understand that they're not exceedingly afraid at this point because of the powerful storm. They're afraid. Why? Because of the powerful God that Jonah worships, that Jonah is fleeing from. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So when Jonah reveals who he's fleeing from, they're asking the question, why in the world would you be doing that? So they're exceedingly afraid. The very thing that Jonah is trying to do, flee from the presence of God, is the very thing he cannot do. And they, just like Jonah, need to recognize that God is almighty. Now think about that question that they ask. What have you done? Do you remember another time in scripture when that question is asked? Genesis 3.13. After Adam and Eve sinned, just like God had always done, he visits his people. But in this case, it's a little bit different. Because Adam and Eve have disobeyed and they go into hiding, right? And God asks Eve the question, what have you done? The picture here is no matter what we have done or what, how we try to hide it, those things will be exposed in order to draw us to the very presence of the Lord. Numbers 32 says this, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will be found out. What have you done? I think the very fact that our sin is found out is the gracious work of the Lord. Because again, that's where our healing begins and that's what we're going to begin to see not only in the life of Jonah but also in the life of these sailors. The fourth thing that we see based on God's uh, divine intervention is that he does it to draw us to repentance. To draw us to repentance. God is doing these things so that that we would turn away from what we're currently doing and turn uh, to him. And even the sailors begin to recognize this. Verse 11, Then they said to him, What shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. The more they hear about what Jonah has done. Have you ever heard that before? I mean, you, you're sitting down with somebody and they're just confessing, right? And you're just like, I can't, I, I don't know if I want to hear anymore, right? And so it's like the more Jonah speaks, the more they recognize that something has to be done. They know that it's Jonah's fault, but they know they can't keep going the way that they're going. And Jonah offers the only solution that makes sense to him. Verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So it's in this moment that we see Jonah starting to relent from what he's done. He's realizing that his running from God has caused major issues in the lives of not only himself, but in the lives of these sailors, and he, he wants it to stop. He wants it to get better. He's recognizing, I am the problem, right? There's no more excuses. It's not them, it's not my circumstances, it's what I have chose to do. So he's beginning to own his own sin. No more excuses, no more blaming. And what is the response of the sailors? Verse 13, the scripture says, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. That phrase, rode hard, is very significant. It means that they literally dug deep. They gave it everything they had, but guess what? Nothing changed. 
They're trying as hard as they possibly can, but nothing is changing the situation. Again, let us not forget that not only Jonah did he need to repent and return to the Lord, but these sailors needed to repent and turn to the Lord for the very first time. And, and what the scripture is teaching us is we can't solve our spiritual problem with our own physical strength, right? No matter how hard they tried, it did not get any better. You see, the sailors are thinking there has to be another way. There has to be another way. The sailors have done everything they think they can do. But absolutely nothing is working. In fact, the storm and the, and the destruction of the storm is still getting worse and worse and worse. And it's at this point that they have to make a decision. Are we going to keep doing things in our own strength, in our own wisdom, or are we going to finally acknowledge the Lord? Are we going to repent? And what do we see in verse 14? Therefore they, the mariners, called out to the Lord, O Lord, again, that's the word Yahweh. It should be all capitalized. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. I mean, think about what miraculously happens in chapter 1 for these sailors. In verse 5, they're, cry they're crying out to any God that they can think of, right? But here we find them in verse 14. These men started to pray to the God of Israel. The, God, uh, the, the storm that God hurled at Jonah as gracious intervention is also God's way of graciously intervening in the lives of these sailors as well. God is using the storm and the consequences of this storm to work in the hearts of these sailors so that they too would begin to cry out in their desperation, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. How many of us have a similar story? As a follower of Christ, you've rebelled against the Lord God begins to intervene, whatever that storm looks like. In the midst of that storm, you begin to repent. You begin to turn back to the Lord. And it's in the midst of that that there's somebody watching your story. Somebody that has a first, seat, uh, first row seat on your story. And they begin to see the graciousness and the power of God and how he intervenes. And it's in the midst of that that they too come to know the Lord. How many of us have a past? And it's through that past, God gives you a testimony. And as you share that testimony, it resonates with somebody who does not even know the Lord. And God uses that testimony to cause them to come to a place of repentance. You see, the sailors became aware of their own inability to save themselves. When no other God would do, only one left standing, and that was the God of Jonah. And that leads us to our last point of intervention. Why does God choose to have intervention in our life? To rescue us. To rescue us. Uh, verses 15 through 17, the scripture says, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I mean, everywhere we go in this chapter, God's in control, right? He's in control of the storm, the captains, the sailors, the questions that are being asked, the prayers that are being lifted up, even this great fish. So here's Jonah at the end. He's Bobbing in the water, doggy paddling probably, right? Just trying to save everything he can. And Jonah doesn't, or God doesn't create a fish. He does what? He appoints a fish. This fish had a divine mission, right? And his mission was to do what? His mission was to rescue Jonah. He is seeking Jonah out. And it's a great reminder to us as well. It doesn't matter how many times we failed. Guess what? We are sought after. It doesn't matter how long we've been running or why we're running or where we're going. We are sought after. And like Jonah, we have, all of us, have run away from the Lord. And like Jonah, God has sought after us. God becomes the hunter, right? One theologian says, he is the hound of heaven. And praise be to God, he is the hound of heaven. So God's intervention is not to destroy us, it is to rescue us. 
The sailors learned that they could either be wrecked by the storm of God's judgment or be rescued by the sacrifice of someone else. This passage points us to a greater sacrifice that would one day satisfy God's full judgment once and for all. Why? Because Jesus Jesus is God's ultimate intervention, right? Approximately 800 years later, Jesus is going to pay the price for our sins. 1 Peter says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is great news for the runner, right? There is no greater love than that displayed on the cross. And it's that forgiveness that we receive on the, the cross is how God removes forever our sin from him, right? Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us to be declared forever not guilty, right? The book of Jonah reminds us that God is willing to meet us at our lowest point, right? At our lowest point to draw us back to himself. He's patiently pursuing you today. 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. God's desire is for you to return to him or to turn to him for the very first time. The life of a repentant sinner is a beautiful life. God is calling us to himself. And for those of us who have friends or family members that are on the run, right, we have them. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't start loving. Don't stop speaking truth into their life. The only hope that they have is the hope that is found in the gospel. God knows where they are. He knows what they're doing. He knows where they're headed. He also knows how to reach them. He knows how to reach them. Everybody's on a ship somewhere. God in his grace chooses to intervene. The question is, Will they respond? Will we respond? God pursues us even when we are running, but we must not delay. Second Peter 3.10 says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Our only hope is the finished work of Jesus Christ. The question is, are you resting in that, or are you running from it? Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you call on him today? Even in the midst of your running, will you see God's gracious intervention in your life? We need God's divine intervention. Do you agree? We need it. We need it to test what we're truly trusting in. We need it to wake us up. We need it to expose our sin, to expose our true identity, to expose the very presence of God in our life. We need the intervention of God to draw us to a place of beautiful repentance and to rescue us. The question is, why are you still running? Why are you still running? So as we stand in just a moment and sing God's amazing grace, the altar will be open for you. Maybe there's someone that you're praying for or trying to love on or speak truth in. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Don't stop. Lift them up to the Lord. Or maybe you're here today and you, you're the runner. You're the runner. And know that God desires to rescue you. He desires to rescue you. Will you choose to be rescued today?